Hey. A little Civil War prophecy today. That'll be fun. Yeah. Some New Testament stuff, wheat and the tares, studying the ark. It's great stuff. Yeah. Uh, welcome. Before we get into our discussion, should we follow up on what we read? Yeah, let's do it. So we are studying Doctrine and Covenant sections 85 to 87 today. The Lord is going to correct the saints for not living the law of consecration, and he's going to reiterate the importance of doing so. He also explains the meaning of the parable of the wheat and the tares and reminds the saints that they are his heirs. And Joseph Smith is going to give us a prophecy about the Civil War, and he is also going to counsel us to stand in holy places. Mm -hmm. So there's a few different things we can talk about in these sections, but we're going to focus in on three in particular. What it means to steady the ark, how to avoid it, the parable of the wheat and the tares, and what it means to stand in holy places. So in order to help us to dive deeper into our scriptures today, we have invited our wonderful friend, Christopher Blythe. Christopher, would you please meet us up here? Love to. Welcome. It really is great to have you, Christopher. Thanks. Thanks, Barbara. So, Chris, you are a research associate at the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship. Um, you also recently authored a book called Terrible Revolution, Latter-day Saints, and the American Apocalypse, correct? I did, yeah. So what is that book about? Terrible Revolution is about Latter-day Saint beliefs in the Second Coming, mm -hmm. what we've emphasized about prophecy at different points in our history, what global events have affected how individual Latter-day Saints have understood mm -hmm. the Second Coming. That's cool. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts, too, when we talk about the, specifically the wheat and tares and how uh, Latter-day Saints in these sections understood the coming of Christ and how we can prepare for it. Speaking of the wheat and tares, is there a scripture or a historical context or something that you can share with us regarding this that stood out to you? Yeah. Do you know, I'm a convert. I joined the church when I was 13. Oh, that's great. And so I'm 26 years in now, twice as long <laughs> in as a, I was before. And this weekend is my son's baptism. Mm. And so what really stood out to me in this reading is a description of the spirit. Um, and I love this. This is in section 85, it's verse six. And Joseph is describing to W.W. W. Phelps his experience in sharing this revelation, what it mm. feels like to hear the, the voice of God. He says, yea, thus saith the still small voice, which whispereth through and pierceth all things. And oftentimes it maketh my bones to quake while it manifest. I love that. Joseph really wants his friend W. Phelps to know this is the experience I'm having. How important is this? As my son, you know, it's eight-year-old's about to get baptized. I really am excited to have him have the gift of the Holy Ghost, that experience of feeling that still small voice that, you know, how do you describe it? And for Joseph, you describe it physically. It's yeah. powerful. Excellent. Thanks. There's some historical context that's really important to understand section 85. Can you just kind of guide us through that historical context as well? Oh, absolutely. So W.A. Phelps is living in Missouri, and Joseph is in Kirtland at the time. When we read several sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, we have to remember uh, we're having excerpts. Sometimes he's writing a letter or giving a sermon, and he stops. It'll become a section of the Doctrine and Covenants. Mm -hmm. But several sections will be these larger documents. And we're really fortunate to live in an era right now where the church has invested so much work into the Joseph Smith Papers. So we mm -hmm. can look at some of these revelations in their full context. Mm -hmm. And so 85 is a beautiful letter, parts of a beautiful letter, that Joseph wrote to W.W. W. Phelps, someone he deeply loved. Joseph writes this letter, and the portion we have in section 85 is in the middle. Um, so we have a, a portion before that isn't included in the section and a portion afterwards. And I just love this portion that he concludes the letter with. He says, O oh Lord, when will the time come when brother William, thy servant, so W.W. W. Phelps, the man he's talking to, 
Behold the day that we may stand together and gaze upon eternal wisdom engraven upon the heavens, while the majesty of our God holdeth up the dark curtain until we may read the sound of eternity to the fullness and satisfaction of our immortal souls. O Lord God, deliver us in thy due time from the little narrow prison, almost as it were total darkness of paper, pen, and ink, and a crooked, broken, scattered, and imperfect language. Um, and then even after sharing this revelation, he says, man, I wish we weren't bound to paper, pen, and ink. Mm-hmm. Um, that trying to share these experiences I've had is really difficult. Yeah. Um, I wish we were experiencing it together. Excellent. Thanks for that. So maybe we can jump right into it then uh, and talk first about uh, steading the ark. Now this phrase, as you probably know, it's something that we sometimes hear in modern times, but it actually comes from the Old Testament. There's a story in 2 Samuel 6, the Israelites were transporting the Ark of the Covenant, which was understood to represent God's presence. And the Ark begins to shake because of the oxen carrying it. And this guy named Uzziah reaches out to steady the Ark, and then he's struck dead by God. <laughs> Which is a horrible story. I shouldn't laugh at that. Um, <laughs> and the reason being that it, it wasn't his place to steady that ark, and that seems to be the literary illusion going on there. What might it mean in this context, um, it, within the context of the Doctrine and Covenants, to, to not steady the ark? Mm-hmm. Yeah. As part of a letter to W.W. Phelps, the question is about consecration. Mm-hmm. The church is now gathering the saints, and we want to live the law of consecration. That's mm-hmm giving your all to the church, including your financials. Mm-hmm. Before this, we see that not everybody really is eager mm-hmm. to participate <laughs> at that high level that's expected of them. Mm-hmm. And this revelation is kind of addressing that. If you don't do that, you don't receive an inheritance mm-hmm. in Zion. And so right before this, that's kind of the context that's, mm-hmm. that's going in here. Mm-hmm. What's it mean to steady the ark of God? Well, I think it's to push back on this major commandment that's happening at the time. Yeah. And you have this person, William McClellan. He's, again, a newer convert to the church. He's asked these questions. He's had his questions answered, but then he's kind of frustrated with Joseph Smith. He takes himself to Missouri against, in a sense, the, the will of the Lord, what the, the Lord has told them to do. And so there's some frustration regarding that too. And, and we don't know contextually exactly what happened. I mean, Oliver actually asked Joseph, did somebody study the ark? Is there a problem? And Joseph basically says, well... You know, it's not, I'm not saying that we did or somebody did, but we need to be careful that we don't, right? It's kind of that idea, so it seems. Yeah. You know, we, we, look at, we look at church magazines, and often in church magazines, it'll even say at the bottom, if you have thoughts or comments or some type of correction, please let us know. Mm-hmm. Is there a difference between trying to improve something versus trying to tell uh, the prophet that he is wrong? And, and in case that's kind of, historically, that's what's happening here. Mm-hmm. But it, when we're looking at it, where is that balance between trying to make an improvement versus the motivation of saying, I'm correct and you're not right, yeah. especially in regards to the authority of the church? I was just teaching uh, an experience that really a well-known Latter-day Saint had, where he had had a spiritual experience um, that hadn't been articulated by the prophet. It was 1998. He wrote President Hinckley, and he asked the question, can I share this experience in my circle, my, mm-hmm. my responsibility? And he joked, he said he assumed that you know, the answer was going to be no immediately. Mm-hmm. But I thought that the story is interesting. As President Hinckley wrote him back and said, actually, you can. You need to make it really clear this isn't revelation from the church, but mm-hmm. that it's consistent with the scriptures. And ultimately, 
I think this individual would have been studying the ARC mm. if they asserted that, President Hinckley, you need to listen to me. Mm. But instead, it was, it was really humble. Mm. Was, this is an experience I had. Is it something that I could share here in the church, even though it's not an official curriculum even? Yeah. I had an experience, I appreciate that, Chris, and it was this kind of a walking experience, maybe an analogy per se. I was on a walk, and I was getting close to a school, and as I was walking up, I saw a little girl and then two boys uh, going across the street. And as I was watching, I saw this other car pull up, and he stopped right in front of these kids, right, so that they could go across on this crosswalk. While doing so, one of the kids fell down, and the other two kept going. While this happened, another car came up behind this car, and you can see what's gonna happen now. This car is wondering, okay, the kids are gone, go, right? So he starts honking his horn, he's really upset, like, go, get off your cell phone, you can hear this thing. And I'm sitting here thinking, the guy in the front is trying to protect this little girl from getting killed, and mm -hmm. the guy behind him is ticked off. The little girl gets back and, and goes across the street, and as she's going across the street, I watched the eyes of the gentleman behind, and he was feeling so so ridiculous, totally embarrassed. The guy in the front didn't say anything, he just drove off. So as I was walking, I thought, this is kind of an analogy of studying the ark in a sense, where the guy in the front was wise enough to not move forward and wise enough to not listen to the guy behind him honking his horn and telling him to go. When you're in a different seat, you have different vision. When you're the prophet, you see the world differently than me sitting in my office at Brigham Young University or in my home. It's wise for both individuals or all individuals to take a step back and look at themselves and say, what's going on here? Am I in the right position to be making this kind of decision? And I really like this idea of the leaders of the church having a different perspective. They're in the front car, right? And they yeah. can see more than we can see. And I mean, a lot of times and I can let my passion get the best of me in the sense of like, if I see something that's like, oh, this is wrong, like how can they not see this or something like that? I'm really passionate about it, but recognize that sometimes I don't have the full picture. Great comment. Yeah. So any thoughts from you that's, in the audience? Mm -hmm. Emily, please. For me, it, it kind of makes me think of when you're at home, everyone has a different way of doing a task and it can be the same task, but everyone does it a different way. So sometimes we look at that and we're like, well, if you did it like this, it'd be so much better or easier. We sometimes let that hold us back from like what we're doing. And like with the gospel, when there's corrections or whatever that we think they need, like, yeah, we can suggest that, but we can't let what isn't happening or is happening hold us back from serving the Lord. And I think that's a big difference is when we're humble enough to continue to follow what the Lord is doing in trust. Like when those changes need to happen, God's gonna let it happen. Just like have that humility that God is going to lead us and we need to be listening for that voice. Thank you. Oh, that is really good. I, so in, in this context, they shall fall by the shaft of death, like as a tree that is smitten by the vivid shaft of lightning. And I think maybe we aren't talking about a literal experience there, mm -hmm. right? Um, but how, if we do harden our hearts when we receive counsel, um, I mean, do we spiritually have an experience like that where we cut ourselves off from knowledge from the Lord because we're pushing back? So this has been an excellent discussion on uh, studying the ark. Now maybe we can talk a little bit about the presence of the parable of the wheat and the tares. So in section 86, Joseph Smith, he's reviewing and editing his manuscript of the translation of the Bible. And the parable originally appears in Matthew 13 in the context of a few other parables which address the question, what is the kingdom of God like? Um, so these are the parables in the New Testament which address that question in, in Matthew. And you're probably familiar with the parable of the wheat and the tares. You have a man sows good seed in his field. His enemy comes at night. He sows some weeds. 
the weeds grow up together. The servants come to the man and say, you know, should we pull up these weeds? And the man says, no, or else we'll also pull up the good crop. So wait till the end uh, and we'll separate them. And then at the end of the parable, both plants are mature and they collect the wheat and burn the tares. Now, there's no interpretation of this parable given in the Gospel of Matthew, but in the Doctrine and Covenants, there is an interpretation. Um, So this is the first time it appears, so you can see what's going on there. So I guess the first question I have, maybe Chris, you can help us out with this. Uh, What is it about uh, this interpretation of the parable that would have been relevant or meaningful for the saints at this time? Joseph does something. He's learned this before he's writing this, Mm -hmm. but he's learned that the parable, it's been tweaked. Mm -hmm. Um, Instead of gathering of the tares first, it's gathering of the wheat. Mm -hmm. And this is really important for the saints in 1832. And that is key. So this is a revelation urging people to gather. Mm -hmm. Relating this parable to Joseph in 1832 is all about the restoration of the gospel, Mm -hmm. acknowledging the apostasy that's happened, and emphasizing that we're being gathered as a people. If I was reading this in 1832, that's what would stand out to me as an early Latter-day Saint. At this point in 1832, that means uh, I might leave my home in New York or wherever I was living and gather where the saints are, Mm -hmm. including Kirtland and Missouri. Even to our day, I mean, President Nelson, how often has he talked about the the gathering of Israel lately and how that is almost the theme that he loves to study. And, you know, you look at that in verse 9. I love this, where he just says, For your lawful heirs according to the flesh and have been hid from the world with Christ in God. And this idea now of not only gathering, but this topic of becoming heirs with God is also bringing in some temple terminology that is going to be fulfilled in the next few years as well. It's mm-hmm. almost like the Lord is doing this gathering, preparing them for the temple, preparing them for the covenants, for this priesthood that they're going to be receiving as the church is, is unfolding. When every time I read about wheat and tares, there's always this kind of caution for me. As members of the church, sometimes we could consider ourselves the wheat and everybody else is the terror and, and we're mm-hmm. the righteous and the Lord's trying to separate it. So how do we discuss this topic of the Lord bringing the wheat together and then these tares and then destroying the tares? How do we do so in a gentle, respectful way that is true? Yeah, Adam, please. So I look at this parable from like the personal standpoint where maybe we're not all wheat or we're not all tares, but we have the, the natural man, the part of ourselves that could be considered the tares. Yeah. Um, so by emphasizing the light of Christ and the spirit that we each have within us, mm-hmm. we're emphasizing the wheat and the tares are going to fade away over time as we keep practicing living yeah. the gospel. Yeah, well, that's excellent. And anytime we encounter kind of metaphorical language like this in parables and we're invited to kind of see ourselves in the parable, are we accustomed to seeing ourselves as the wheat or the tares? We can kind of use that as a thought experiment. How does this parable speak to me differently if I associate with myself with somebody different in the parable or a different image. Excellent. So actually, we have a video from a viewer at home about this, yeah. Hi, we're the Anderson family. We live in Utah. And we've been talking about the parable of the wheat and the tares. And in teaching that to our kids, we run into the problem of they see someone making a decision that doesn't line up with what we're trying to teach them to do. And we're trying to teach them that everybody has their agency. But how do we teach them? that we want them to make good decisions? I think that's a great question from the Anderson family and what they're asking there. And I think it's difficult. I mean, depending on where you live in the country, in the United States or throughout the world, you're going to have different neighbors. You could be living in a predominantly Latter-day Saint community, and even then you're going to have people that are making different decisions. Your kids can play on Sunday in one family, and the next family the kids aren't allowed out to leave the house, and it's based on Mm -hmm. how different families are applying principles of the gospel. And frankly, they could both be right. Mm -hmm. How do we deal with this? How do we help? Yeah, please. 
I think it's honestly between you and the Lord. You can't look at someone else and be like, oh, they're doing it like this, so I should get to do it like this, or they're less than me, or they're more than me. Like, the way that we live the gospel is literally between us and God, and we should be doing what we feel is right and not focused on how others do it because we're accountable to the Lord for what's in our hearts. And if we're doing stuff just because we feel like we're forced to or because our parents tell us, then there's no point. Like, we have to do what we believe is right, and if we are doing what we think God wants us to, then it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. When, when you coerce a, someone, it tends to make them insincere. At some point, we want them to become morally autonomous agents. We want them to be able to do good and, and be um, independently motivated to do good. Parents, I think sometimes we have to kind of focus on getting them to cultivate those proper motivations. I think when I teach my children, I do uh, teach them that because they know who they are, because mm -hmm. they have an understanding of themselves as children of God, that they have a, a responsibility to live up to that level, um, to that knowledge they have of themselves. And mm -hmm. I think it is one of the, the important things because we understand our divine potential and who we are. Mm -hmm. um, I hope that knowledge helps our children understand that it's a great thing to be different, even when others are living different standards. Yeah. I, I think in verse 11, we, the Lord is saying, Blessed are ye if you continue in my goodness, a light unto the Gentiles. And then he continues, and through this priesthood, a savior unto my people. In President Nelson's biography, mm -hmm. there's a wonderful story in there where he talks about a letter that he wrote to his children. But he says in there, be careful not to always be the swimmer. We need lifeguards, right? Mm -hmm. They should be able to tell the difference between a lifeguard and a swimmer. If we can't tell the difference, then people are going to drown. And as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we, as well as other faithful people who believe in God, have a responsibility to be Christ-like. Yeah, excellent. So this has been a great discussion on, on the meaning of the parable of the wheat and the tares. Uh, maybe now we can transition and talk a little about what it means to stand in holy places. Yeah, so if we go to section 87, right off, we see in the last verse, wherefore stand ye in holy places and be not moved until the day of the Lord come, behold, it cometh quickly. Mm -hmm. So, so it's, it's the last verse in there, but again, there's a lot of context that's going to get us into understanding that verse better. Chris, do you feel comfortable in giving us that context again? Oh, I'd love to. Uh, section 87 is really special in our Doctrine and Covenants, whereas the earlier sections we spoke about were contained in the Doctrine and Covenants in the 1830s. This one actually wasn't added until 1876. Joseph, having this experience... It's a prophecy of the Civil War, right? Joseph records it, 1832. He talks about it in 1840. But in the words of Brigham Young, it wasn't wisdom to add it in the scriptures yet. Joseph was actually nervous sometimes about sharing prophecies, particularly that predicted bad things happening in America. We didn't want people thinking we weren't good patriots like everybody else. Which and, makes sense in the context of what we've struggled with, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So predicting the downfall of your neighbors <laughs> isn't a great thing. Section 87, he's predicting really some details of the Civil War. I think it's important to point out that this is a prophecy that the saints believed in and really explained uh, for them the events in the decades after Joseph Smith's death mm -hmm. reminded them and confirmed their, their witness that he was a real prophet. Mm -hmm. Saw things that were going to occur even in their lifetimes. Yeah. Just for the context of this section, maybe it's important just to look, just kind of pointing out some words that will put it in context of the Civil War. So you see in verse one, you're talking about a beginning at the rebellion of South Carolina. And then you have verse two, time will come that war will be poured out upon all nations 
beginning at this place. And you see verse three calling upon Great Britain. And then you see verse four, and we're talking about the slaves shall rise up against their masters. And then verse five, we go into the remnants and this chastening hand of the Almighty. So I'm bringing this out so in context of the audience and things we can see that this isn't just, he's not just saying the civil war is going to happen but he's giving us context of the when and the who and, and yes. who's going to be calling upon who. And it's actually general, but it's also extremely specific in context of what's going on here in 1832. Oh, also yes. fascinating, I think, that it's Christmas Day. I mean, what a revelation to get on, on Christmas, you know? <laughs> it's a little scary. <laughs> That's yeah. not what I want to receive on Christmas. Yeah. yeah. So, Chris, we have here in verse 8, the Stangy and Holy Places. How does that really tie into the Civil War prophecy? It seems a little out of place, perhaps. Right. Well... The prophet's teaching here that the saints, if they follow the prophet, can actually have a place of actual safety. Zion is a place of refuge, to quote section 45. And so um, that's the promise here. These terrible things are going to happen. To recall the gathering of section 86, the Lord has a plan of safety for his people. So pay attention. It's pretty strong. I mean, verse 6 the sword by blood to the inhabitants of the earth shall mourn and with famine and plagues and earthquakes and thunder of heaven and fierce and vivid lightnings, cry of the saints, the blood of the saints. Well, if you don't want all of this, stand ye in holy places. That's right. right. And be not moved until the day of the Lord come. Like, follow the prophet, do what's right, stand that place. Thank you. Chris. Oh, that's absolutely right, Barbara. So we've talked a little bit about the historical context of this verse. I'm wondering now, I mean, as all of us know, this idea of standing in holy places is also something that we commonly hear when we discuss um, the gospel today. So uh, we actually have a video from a viewer at home that asked a question about this. Hello, my name is Jane. I know that I need to stand in holy places and be not moved. I know that some of these places can include attending the temple, going to church, and worshiping here at home with my family and studying on my own through the Come Follow Me program. My question is, as a youth in the latter days, when it seems that Satan and his evil influences are closing in on me in every side, how can I bring with me in my heart and in my mind the peaceful, joyful influences of those holy places? And also, how can I share those, um, those influences and that spirit with those around me when we find ourselves in these situations? Thank you. Excellent. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, Eliza. So one thing for me that's always been standing in holy places is just you don't have to physically be there. It's just knowing what you believe and like when you need to stand for something and like not wavering your standards and just being really built into Christ's rock and his foundation so that when people come and test you or like the winds and storms of life that are sent to you, like you really don't stop fighting for what you believe in. You stay firm in it. Makes sense. Thanks for that. Yeah, Yelena. Um, so before the everything with the COVID-19 pandemic began, I was a worker in the Payson Temple. And a lot of times when I think of holy places, that's one of the first places that come to mind, being in the temple. But when that shut down, there was a while that we weren't able to um, serve in the temple. I had a scripture come to mind that went along the lines of, knowing not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. And so just emphasize to me that we can have that holy place wherever we are as we're seeking to keep our covenants and follow God. And we can have that spirit with us and create that holy place. Excellent. So there's this book, The, the Diary of Adam and Eve. It's an imaginary diary of what they were doing in Eden. So um, Eve is writing, hey, I met this guy named Adam today, and he's kind of weird, and he's talking to these animals and stuff <laughs> like that. So it just imagines what's going on in their mind. And at the end of the story, you have Adam standing over Eve's gravestone. And on her gravestone, it says, uh, wherever she was, that was Eden. 
And I mean, it's the same way of standing in holy places. If we make ourselves holy, if we invite the light of Christ within us, if we have the Holy Spirit, that can be a holy place wherever we are, right? You know what I particularly found over the past difficult year is that holy places aren't always the place that makes me feel stress-free mm-hmm. or calm, meditative. Maybe it's having a confidence that things will get better or trying to have the spirit in my life. I think this is really important. Uh, really great insights um, in this conversation. Thank you, Chris. Christopher, we really appreciate you being here. We oh, appreciate your insights. It's, it's fun to listen to you and your, your use of the Joseph Smith papers and also your scriptures in your context. Thank you so much. We'd like to thank you also in our studio audience. Thank you for being here. Thanks for your thoughts, your insights, your testimonies. And so those of you at home, thank you for your comments and questions and insights that you share with us via social media. Uh, we'd love to have you join us sometime in the studio, but if you can't, we hope you'll tune in next week for a come follow-up. Thanks. Thanks so much. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.